Hi, I'm Linda Calabresi. I'm a GP and the medical editor of HealthEd. Welcome to our unique podcast series now available direct to your device. The series features some of Australia's leading clinical experts talking on topics that are both practical and important to Australian GPs. Thank you to HealthEd for asking me to talk. Uh, my name's Dr Andrew Scroop. I'm a respiratory physician uh, currently in private practice. Uh, see a wide range of respiratory health and have an increasing interest in teaching and, and education. Uh, this talk is about spirometry uh, with some touching on spirometry in the COVID space, which of course is a little controversial. And also it's aid in the diagnosis and distinction between asthma and COPD. So we get three things out of spirometry. Um, this is physiology from med school, but I always found this a bit challenging at the time. Force vital capacity, so how much air can you blow out to your lungs are empty, being sure that you've taken a full breath in to total lung capacity. This forced expiratory volume in one second, that's the amount of that air from the forced vital capacity that comes out in the first second. And the FEV1 FEC ratio, which by convention, is normal if it's uh, greater than 0.7, although there is some uh, variation in the elderly and the very tall. These are the three critical measurements in uh, performing, assessing and using spirometry for the diagnosis and management of COPD. The flow volume curves, uh, we've got the normal one on the left, the peak or maximum expiratory flow, which is where the dotted line is, so that's the peak flow that you might measure with a peak flow meter. In the middle, restrictive or sometimes pseudo-restrictive because people just don't empty their lungs fully, they get fatigued. And then obstructive, uh, the curve uh, on my right with the concavity, uh, still making it out to FVC, but a restriction to expiratory airflow. And often just by looking at spirometry, without looking at the numbers, you just look at this curve, which pretty much all spirometers will provide. You can make a diagnosis, at least of airflow obstruction, just on the flow volume loops. So performing diagnostic or confirmatory spirometry, it's safe. Uh, there are no absolute contraindications, although I'll come to a few relative ones in a minute, but it is demanding. Um, I've done spirometry, it's hard work. It is a maximal effort and it's really in the title of that physiology. It's a forced vital capacity. It's not a uh, do as best as you can, but don't go too hard vital capacity and forced expiratory volume in one second. It produces relatively high intrathoracic, abdominal and intracranial and even intraocular pressures with that forced manoeuvre. When shouldn't you do it? If someone's had their cataracts out or had a meningioma removed maybe or recent ear surgery such as a repair of a tympanic membrane, you probably want to wait at least a couple of weeks. Thoracic or abdominal surgery, hernia repair is the typical one you want to wait about six weeks. Cerebral aneurysms and abdominal aneurysms are not a contraindication to spirometry unless they've recently been repaired. Unstable angina or a recent MI, you probably should avoid that within four weeks, but the clinical situation might demand that you do it before then. For example, if people are looking at a cardiac bypass. Recent significant hemoptysis might be exacerbated by the procedure. If they've had a pneumothorax within the last Six weeks is conservative, certainly within the last three or four, you'd want to be sure that that had resolved. If they've got nausea, vomiting and diarrhoea, I don't know about you, but I would not want to be doing spirometry if I felt like that anyway. 
and if they had a current or recent respiratory infective illness, and that can be hard to tell from simple questioning. Is it an infection? Is it a symptom variation? Or what is it? Spirometry in COVID is controversial. Of course, there was a big hiatus when spirometry just wasn't done or it was done in extremely limited circumstances. There were guidelines from state and national health bodies about that at different times during this COVID pandemic. But I direct you to a, this excellent recent position paper uh, jointly through the Thoracic Society and the Australian New Zealand Society of Respiratory Scientists about pulmonary function testing, but spirometry in this context in the COVID space, and it was only very recently published. There's an excellent synopsis at the beginning. Some of the pointers I would give is that if it's not urgent, and it isn't often urgent, you want to wait at least a couple of weeks after a close, for example, household exposure. You also want to wait at least a couple of weeks after people have been diagnosed with COVID, and depending on their symptom resolution, that might be up to several weeks. It's up to several weeks if you're immune compromised, and that's those same definition of immune compromised that exists for treat with antivirals, only because these people tend to excrete COVID for longer in viable form in their respiratory droplets that are expelled during spirometry or during coughing brought on by spirometry. So realistically, you probably want to wait several weeks in those groups. You want to have a dedicated room for it. Ideally, where possible, certainly with a door shut, but as closed as possible to other internal spaces and have the least number of people in there, which is usually the operator and the person doing the test only. You can consider air exchanges or air changes per hour. That is a challenge. You need a, an air conditioning engineer to do that. And it's often not modifiable unless the building has previously been constructed to allow that to change. Uh, air purifiers, particularly HEPA uh, filter containing air purifiers, are a pretty good alternative where you can't deal with the air changes per hour. And I'll come to a bit more of that in a moment. The operator should be wearing a P2 or N95 mask with adequate eye protection, maybe a face shield and eye protection, gloves with good hand hygiene. Gowns are actually optional depending on the anticipated spread of any coughing. It might be reasonable to have a gown on anyway, a disposable gown. Inline filters are available for most major brands of spirometers and of course are disposable. The mouthpieces have always been disposable. If assessing bronchodilator response, it does get a little harder because we're talking four puffs of a Ventolin PMDI virus spacer after the baseline spirometry. You can use disposable spacers. You can adequately clean the spacers uh, in a submergible disinfectant or get people to bring their own and bring their puffer or not do it unless there's a good reason to do it. But there are some Medicare limitations if you don't assess bronchodilator response. And of course, wiping all the relevant surfaces, alcohol disinfectant is satisfactory, but all those surfaces afterwards, uh, that includes the seat tops, the bench tops, etc., between patients. Uh, HEPA filter or air purifiers, uh, they're relatively inexpensive. Uh, you don't necessarily need to get a commercial grade one. Some air conditioning units ducted with filters, you can add a HEPA filter to it, but it does significantly increase the resistance. And I'm no air conditioning engineer, but that does require a fair bit of cost and time if you're going to do that. But the portable ones, which you can see at Harvey Norman and Good Guys and all those sort of places, are relatively inexpensive and 
almost no maintenance. They are ultimately disposable, the filters inside them, but you get months out of a single one on continuous use. You can try and work out from a HEPA filter, air purifier, the air changes in a room per hour. The ideal is 12, but really above six or even 10 is still pretty good. Uh, and what you can look at is the clean air delivery rate and, and these devices will give you a number in metres cubed about their maximum output and bear in mind that is the maximum, it's not the range that they can operate over but they can all be set to maximum. You simply divide that by the room volume also in cubic metres and you'll come up with an estimate of air changes per hour. It's not ideal but if you can't actually exchange the air with external air uh, it's a very good alternate option and really quite cheap. CO2 monitoring has come and gone and come again as an assessment of indoor air exchanges and air quality. It has a lot of its background in tall office buildings and, and I don't know if people remember uh, many years ago there was a lot of talk about the, uh, the sick building syndrome and CO2 monitoring has come a long way since then and if you wanted to you can buy relatively cheap CO2 monitors of your own and it's to try and assess in an occupied by people, humans, room, the adequacy of the air exchange. It has no way of measuring the effect of, uh, efficacy of a HEPA filter, for example, because that doesn't remove CO2. It's just about air exchange with outside air. Uh, roughly speaking, if the CO2 level is less than 1,000 parts per million, that's adequate ventilation. There are some limits, though. There's very little data directly showing the relevance of this to COVID cross-infection in spirometry or lung function testing, for example. There's no absolute cutoff of what's good and bad, and it doesn't take into account other simple measures, as I've mentioned, HEPA filtration, surface cleaning, cough etiquette for the people doing the test, those sort of things. So how do you get the patient ready? There's often a bit of anxiety, as you might expect. We have a standard sheet about medication withhold, if possible, and it's not critical short-acting beta agonist or short-acting muscarinic antagonists for six hours before, the long-acting bronchodilators for 24 hours before. Uh, that's not always possible uh, for symptomatic reasons or people just forget. I wouldn't abandon the test if that happens. Ideally, they won't smoke on the day uh, and ideally they won't perform strenuous exercise and probably not both. It takes a while, uh, it can be time consuming. Once you get to about eight attempts, you've probably gone as far as you're gonna go in that individual in getting a reproducible result. It shouldn't take more than about 10 minutes to get three acceptable results. And if you're going to give them some Ventolin, you need to wait about 10 or 15 minutes after they've had that before redoing their spirometry. This is where reversibility testing is relevant, particularly in the differentiation of asthma and COPD or asthma COPD overlap syndrome. Baseline spirometry, they have their bronchodilator, four puffs via spacer is adequate, and then you repeat the spirometry. The minimum definition for bronchodilator reversibility ensures that there's baseline airflow obstruction, so an FEV1, FVC less than 0.7, and a baseline FEV1 less than 80% predicted, and that there's a 12% or minimum 200 mils improvement after they've had the Ventolin. If it's more than 400 mils improvement, you're pretty much clinching the diagnosis of asthma as long as there is baseline airflow obstruction. But you do have to take all of these spirometric measurements in account with the clinical history. So if your gut feeling is of something else, that needs to be taken into account. The spirometry is not a standalone test 
without the clinical context. So I need to explain it clearly, maybe demonstrate it. They needed to be seated. Uh, many moons ago, there was uh, an educational session about spirometry where a general practitioner who's since retired uh, was confident in doing spirometry at one of the testing stations and wanted to do it standing. Not really sure why, because the normal values are predicated on being seated. It was embarrassing because he fell over and hit his head on the ground. A nose clip is preferred but not essential and they need to be disposable. Uh, and they might want a few practice goes before they start. We need to record their sex, their age, their height and their ethnicity. The latter's tricky because although there are normal data for different ethnic groups, it is sometimes a bit cumbersome to change it on the testing equipment and I'll come to that a bit later. So you need to breathe in fully with this test and a lot of people don't breathe. They take a big breath but not necessarily to total lung capacity. There's no easy way to measure that from observation or whilst doing the test other than with strong encouragement and making sure there's not something limiting them like chest pain or shoulder pain from taking a big breath in. Seal their lips around the mouthpiece, don't bite on it, and then blow out as hard and as fast and for as long as they possibly can. And usually the last few hundred mils, people have no sensation the air is actually leaving them at all. And they will need to be coached during this period. And you can often see it in real time on the spirometry screen. If you get three acceptable and reproducible results, then you're golden and that's your pre-test potentially or your post-test. Acceptability criteria, the first flow volume loop, see that sort of blunting, there's no peak flow. They really just haven't given it their all. Not, not because they don't want to, but maybe they just didn't understand. The second one, that pseudo-restriction pattern, so the normal flow volume loop is the hashed line in all of these. And what we see is those two other lines that are like a smaller version of that, they can't achieve a maximal effort because they haven't taken a full breath in to total lung capacity. And the last one, a relatively common one, it's pretty strenuous at this point towards the end of that expiration. They just stop. Uh, they've had enough, they think it's all done and dusted and they stop and you get this abrupt termination. Reproducibility. Most of the software on the spirometers will tell you whether there uh, is enough uh, uh, coherence or reproducibility between the spirometric manoeuvres, but these are some definitions that you might use here. Uh, 150 mils or 100 mil for FVC and similar for FEV1. But bear in mind, if you're struggling and the patient's struggling, you're getting up to seven or eight attempts, you might be forced into accepting a couple that are reproducible rather than the standard three. Sorry for the small font, but problems, don't take a full breath in, don't take a full breath out. Slow to start, too early to stop. Don't seal on the mouthpiece. Occasionally people try and talk when they're doing the manoeuvre, which is uh, somewhat entertaining. Uh, they may cough part way through, which is often hard to avoid, particularly if they're being assessed for cough in the first place. Put their tongue in the mouthpiece. Uh, nose leak, which is generally not a big problem. The palate usually seals that in the back of the throat. And when you're looking at interpreting the data, you do need to take into account ethnicity. Uh, it's very common to see people of Indian or similar origin. Even once you take into account their sex, height and weight, and age, the Caucasian or Anglo-Saxon normal data don't serve them and they'll all appear restrictive on spirometry. Uh, it is possible to adjust for that but you need to be aware of that. 
very tall, skinny people and very short, fat people, it is very hard to know what the normal range is for them. So how do we interpret? This is a very simple algorithm. If the F of U1 and F of C are normal, and that ratio that we talked about earlier is greater than 0.7, that's normal. That doesn't exclude lung disease, mind you, but their spirometry is normal. If the F of U1 is low, below 80% predicted, and the FEC is also similarly low, and the F of U1 FEC ratio is still above 0.7, that's probably restrictive or occasionally a poor effort. If the F of U1 is low, and the FEC is normal or just down a little bit, but they're obstructive, so the F of U1 FEC ratio is less than 0.7, then that's obstructive. That doesn't mention bronchodilator response. You'll often get, particularly in people with very severe airflow obstruction, uh, and sometimes in those who are obese as well, a markedly reduced F of E1 with a moderately reduced FVC. So the F of E1 might be 30% predicted, their FVC might be 70% predicted. They're still obstructed based on the F of E1 FVC ratio, but that's very much a mixed obstruction and restriction pattern. That has other implications and might require a complex lung function testing, such as lung volumes or gas transfer. So asthma versus COPD spirometry. You need a clinical history from these people. You need a suspicion. Do you think they've got one or the other or both? Are you not sure? Uh, you need to do spirometry. Uh, in fact, the prescribing of many of the inhaled therapies for COPD actually require you to have done spirometry, although they never check that, of course. You cannot diagnose COPD on a chest X-ray, despite the radiologist frequently saying that. You need spirometry. You don't need to do it often, but you need to do it at least once, and it needs to be done well. Recent treatment, for example, oral steroids or recent illness, COVID might affect the results. If you've got any past spirometry to look at, that will give you some excellent clues, particularly about assessing asthma management. And comorbidities will confound the assessment of asthma and COPD, particularly morbid obesity, which can have quite a variable effect on obstruction and restriction, as well as of its own being associated with increased risk of asthma. So what's the diagnosis here? This is some example spirometry, which I'm just going to, to briefly go through. We've got the forced vital capacity at the top there. Their pre is 3.3 litres, 101% of predicted. That's normal. If we go to their FEV1, 1.88, and in the percent predicted column, 62.7. So that's definitely low. It's, it's more than two standard deviations below where it should be, below the lower limit of normal, below 80%. And then FEV1 versus FVC ratio, we talked about the relevance of the 0.7 cutoff. Uh, that is definitely obstructive. It's less than 0.7. So they're obstructive. They have a low FEV1, a normal FVC, and a less than 0.7 FEV1 FVC ratio. And finally, if we look at their FEV1 improvement after Ventolin, it goes from 1.88 litres to 2.76 litres. That's a humongous improvement. It's more than 200, it's more than 400. It's 47%. That's pretty convincing for asthma, undertreated asthma uh, in this person. Now, may need to think about comorbidities nonetheless, but their airflow obstruction is nearly completely, if not completely reversible following Ventolin. It's more than 200 and it's definitely more than 400 mils and it's certainly way more than 12% or the older value of 15%. So this is asthma. This is the flow volume loop. 
We've got the pre-curve, uh, which is the blue, and the post-curve, which is the red. They've had good test performance. They've reached force vital capacity, which is they've gotten towards the end of the solid predicted black line. Um, we can see the typical concavity of the flow volume loop. And this is a more than usual uh, appearing uh, acute bronchodilator improvement. It's not that common you'll see such a dramatic shift in the curves during spirometry, but it does, does happen and is very rewarding from a treatment point of view when you see it. So asthma, reversible airflow obstruction, either completely or nearly completely, but you need the correct clinical context. And sometimes in people who you think they've got asthma, it's a lay down misere, which is a euchre term, you don't always see reversibility. That might be because they're maximally treated. Maybe they have asthma COPD overlap. Maybe you just caught them on a bad day. So don't write off the diagnosis of asthma if it is discordant with your other clinical features based on one spirometric result necessarily. And interpreting spirometry is a challenge in people already on treatment. Um, common phrase I'll use to patients is, well look, your spirometry is entirely normal, but I can't tell you whether that's because the inhaled treatment that you're on, or would it be normal anyway? That can be tricky, and that comes to back titration, which is beyond the scope of this talk. Uh, I can also do exhaled nitric oxide, which is a further way to assess persistent asthmatic airway inflammation or airway eosinophilia, which is quite instructive in those who have symptoms, normal spirometry, but a high pheno, implying that there is undertreated asthmatic airway inflammation. So what's the diagnosis here? It's probably not too hard to guess, given what we've just had before. So we've got an FVC of 5.64, or 103% predicted, uh, an FEV1 of 3.43, or 76.8% predicted. So that's below 80% predicted. So that's a normal FVC and an abnormal FEV1. And an FEV1 FVC ratio in that pre-column of 60.79, which is definitely less than 0.7. So they are obstructive without any other features. And lastly, if you look at the FEV1, the pre versus post bronchodilator, there is no meaningful change there at all. In the right clinical context, and this is the supporting flow volume loop with that typical concavity, uh, achieving force vital capacity, which is matching up with the end of the black predicted line, and no change in the pre versus post spirometry. This is pretty convincing of COPD in the right clinical context. The only time to be a little careful about that is that as people get older, uh, there is a degree of expected uh, airflow obstruction, at least using the definition of FEV1, FVC less than 0.7. So just be a little careful. If the clinical story doesn't add up, but they're apparently obstructive, they may not actually have clinically meaningful COPD, particularly in those uh, beyond 70. And some very tall, very tall men in particular, will have apparent airflow obstruction based on spirometry, but that will actually be normal for them, and that's where your clinical judgment comes in, and the clinical context. So a big time smoker who's short of breath and wheezes with this spirometry would be pretty consistent with COPD. Sometimes you will see reversibility, maybe even 20% of the time, even though the clinical diagnosis is one of COPD. It's worth just taking that into account thinking could they have asthma as well, but often it's just a one-off phenomenon that you're never able to repeat with escalating treatment. So be cautious about changing therapy based on an acute bronchodilator response in someone who you're confident has COPD. Detailed lung function in this group adds further information about gas trapping, which can be important for COPD management, 
and reduce gas transfer, particularly talking about emphysema, which is alveolar destruction as distinct from COPD, which is airway narrowing, although clearly the two are linked. So sometimes the breathing test results are just uninterpretable. The most common reason for that is the test was just done poorly. And if that's the case, bring them back another day, do it again, or if you're still struggling, you'll need to refer them elsewhere to a, a complex respiratory function lab. And they may have more luck, but there are some people who just are incapable of being coached through spirometry. Uh, that's fact of life, and it comes back to the art of medicine and your clinical judgment at that point. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. We hope you are enjoying this series and will recommend it to your friends and colleagues. I'm Linda Calabresi, and on behalf of the team here at HealthEd, I look forward to joining you soon for our next podcast. If you enjoyed this audio segment, you can find out more about our free webcast lectures, which can be accessed from any device on our website at healthed.com.au. The podcasts published on this page are for medical professionals only. The content is not a substitute for medical advice. If you have a health issue, you should seek the advice of a suitable qualified health professional.